We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Verdon. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Lizzie, are you the sort of person who gets a secret thrill out of something being free? Oh, yes. <laughs> you know I'm married to Captain Frugal, Stephen. I love a freebie, but I know what you're getting at. We have had the list of what MPs have been enjoying in terms of free hospitality, whether it's concerts or sporting goods. It only has to be over £180,000, though. But for me, the classiest is the Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden. He's been to Ascot, he's been to the Royal Opera House, he's also been to Formula One and the Chelsea Flower Show to top it off. It raises a really interesting question because when you put all these things together it it seems like a lot frankly because it's also a question of where these gifts are coming from. It's big names from banking, uh, oil companies, you know, companies that we know and perhaps it doesn't look great to have, for example, the Shadow Economic Secretary to the Treasury, Tulip Sadiq, getting tickets to the Chelsea Flower Show also from the from Lloyd's Banking Group, uh, for example. The rule here is, is that if the amount is over £300, that it has to be declared. But I wonder if it raises the question of just does declaring it absolve uh, any, I suppose, negative implications from having uh, received these sorts of gifts? Well, Stephen, you asked the serious question. I was asking myself whether Keir Starmer really is suitable for office when he wants Coldplay tickets. <laughs> £698 he got for them. Oh, I'm sure other, other other musical acts are available. I was looking through this, though. The Hay Festival, that would interest me. I'd Tasteful. go to that, mm-hmm. yeah. Um Wimbledon's in there as well but as I say the association question I think is going to be an interesting one to unpick and to see how much political hay the parties decide to make out of this because it it is uh, you know members of both of the two main parties who received these gifts so it is a question then of what they'll you know how much they'll be willing to rib each other over it yeah and how much influence the likes of Lloyd's banking get in exchange for these but I guess it's on the record these ministers are comfortable with it yeah certainly are now, the news coming out of Russia in the past 24 hours, turning to something else that's caught our eye today, is being closely watched in capitals all across Europe. Russian authorities say the Wagner Group leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, died in a plane crash. Two months ago, the mercenary had led a mutiny against Vladimir Putin before calling it off at the last minute. We're lucky to have our Europe correspondent, Maria Tadeo, with us in London today to talk to us about this story. Maria, how much of, first of all, a bombshell is this news, as we understand it, according to Russian reports? Uh, well, it depends who you ask. I would I would say we just uh, had on the show was Vitana Chikinovskaya, who is the uh, head of the Belarusian opposition. Remember, this goes back to the 2020 election uh, against Alexander Lukashenko, which the international community says was rigged. And the reason why Belarus and Lukashenko matters in this is because two months ago when this coup, this insurrection, however we want to call it, he was a man who said, uh, we have a deal now uh, to de-escalate things between uh, Prigozhin and Vladimir Putin. He will come to Belarus, go, stay in exile. And and uh, he will continue his life, essentially. Uh, what we know now is that two months later, there has been this plane crash with uh, no reason yet as to what led to this plane crash, uh, no black box, and a lot of speculation, a lot of questions still unanswered. But going back to Svetlana Chikanuskaya, one of the things that I asked her was, are you shocked, surprised in any way? And she said, no. And to me, and again, I quote her, just to be very clear, she said, 
it looks like this was revenge for what happened. And it goes back to this idea of Russia becoming not just an authoritarian police state, but almost a thug state where uh, maybe it takes time, maybe you have to wait, but there will be repercussions to questioning uh, the authority of Vladimir Putin. Uh, Prigozhin did just that. And today we have this news of, well, the plane crashed. For what reason? That remains to be seen. Will we get an answer ever? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it kind of opens more questions than it gives answers. I wonder then how much Europe's leaders, like Rishi Sunak, can really react to this news in public. Uh, look, in, in public, that's a very good point, because uh, when you have news like this, and I was, uh, well shocked when I saw this. I'm sure you two were too. Mm. Uh, so obviously we're following the news. We would assume more leaders are also following the news. Uh, publicly, you would assume. Publicly, uh, obviously they would not come in because I've always framed this as whatever happened in Russia, this is an internal matter uh, for Russia. The convulsion that we saw play out two months ago, this is not for international governments uh, to play in because a lot of that would feed into the perception that is given out to the Russian people that this is almost an existential war the West against Russia to destroy destroy uh, Russia. So they're very uh, well cautious and, and careful to not uh, weigh into this. No official reaction from anyone, no comment uh, from NATO either. But the Ukrainians that I spoke with today, I think they really nailed it in terms of the way that global leadership is going to look at this, which again shows if there was a deal cut between Vladimir Putin, Lukashenko and Prigozhin, obviously well, that deal was not worth the paper it was written on. It also shows that if the hand of the Kremlin is behind this or willing to go to very extreme situations, which again takes us back to can you negotiate a peace settlement with Vladimir Putin? Is this an, uh, a mediator, someone uh, that you can talk with and, and have that kind of mediation that at times have been brought up between Russia and Ukraine? When you talk to the Ukrainians, they say this proves once again that they cannot trust Russia. I mean, this comes at a time when we're around a year away from an election in the UK. Mm -hmm. There are European elections next May. There's going to be a new European Commission constituted after that as well. Should we expect to see any shift in narrative as politicians shift into that election mode? Uh, for the European election, which is, again, it's a good point because the the, the electoral map is changing across uh, Europe. We've talked about this idea of uh, the Conservatives and, and the right uh, doing better than expected, potentially. But the big question would be whether Ursula von der Leyen uh, stays in the job or not, we understand that there is a desire to go for a second mandate. And this is a woman that has been a super open advocate for Ukraine. It is also understood that if the commission this year, so we're talking about 2023, they decide that you can start opening the accession talks for Ukraine to enter the European Union, this is going to become a process that is now binded uh, by regulation. That means no matter what happens, uh, Ukraine and the European Union, that would not shift. And there's no indication to believe the future commission would change on that idea of support for Ukraine. But you do mention the U.S. election. I think that's something that really worries uh, everyone. If you get a candidate who says, I can fix this conflict or this war in one day, or we're spending way too much on Ukraine or change in the Biden administration, well, that would change things for the Europeans, certainly, because if you look at the numbers here, it is clear that the United States outpaces everyone when it comes to the funding that they sent, but also the weapons that have been provided. Yeah, I do wonder whether it's an inflection point after we heard from all those Republican primary candidates last night, except Donald Trump. He was the notable absentee. All right. Thank you to our Europe correspondent, Maria Tadeo, with us in London. Now, for a different perspective on the story, we've been speaking to Justin Crump, who's the CEO of Sibyline, uh, a corporate intelligence and security firm. Lizzie and Anna Edwards asked him if he'd be surprised if Prigozhin had died in these circumstances. No, not really. I think 
uh, widely he was viewed in the analytical community as being a dead man walking um, ever since the attempted coup, you know, his march for justice, however you want to view it. Uh, but obviously something that deeply embarrassed um, the Russian regime, the Russian leadership, and uh, something that I think really did, you know, from that moment, obviously put a target on his back. Now, they came to a deal after that incident two months ago, but it's pretty clear, I think, that um, while he may have felt that he had a deal with uh, with the authorities, they didn't really feel they had a deal with him. And I think you've seen over the last few months this dismembering of Wagner more generally, they've lost their heavy equipment. They've been sent to more dispersed locations. Recruitment's halted. They're not being employed uh, in and around Ukraine in the way they were. Um, although overseas operations have continued in Africa, where it's it's very useful for the Kremlin to have them operating. Uh, but nonetheless, they've seen this slide. And I think, you know, Prigozhin ultimately was always at risk and probably is being rather too blasé and relying on his reputation and friends to protect him. So, Justin, hi there. When you've got the biggest threat to Putin in his quarter century rule presumed dead, are we to conclude that Putin's very much in control and that the Western sanctions to try to bring about regime change in Russia have failed? Yeah, it's interesting when you say Putin very much in control. I mean, I think at one time he was very much the strong leader, issuing direction, very much the coordinator of things. But over that quarter of a century, and it's a long time to be in charge of any organization, let alone a country as complex and convoluted as Russia. And I think it's pretty clear at this point that he's not really in control and he hasn't been for a while. I think there's various factions under him that are competing for power and influence and uh, he's riding more over the top. And there are reasons to think that, particularly during Prokosian's action, where uh, he reportedly wanted to abdicate control of certain strategic functions because he was just effectively done with the situation. So we talk about Putin you know, being in control. Putin does this, Putin does that. I think he, he's not really. It's it's the various factions under him, and it suits them to um, have him, obviously, at the front. He's the figurehead. He's he's that figure. Uh, and frankly, who else would want the job? Mm-hmm. I mean, so Pugos- I think that's pretty, you know, <laughs> pretty yes. clear. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just linking this to the war in Ukraine, Prigozhin uh, was a critic of the way that the war was being waged and obviously his Wagner um, uh, group was on the ground. What yes. does what, what should the Ukrainian interpretation of this be? Should there be relief uh, that some that, 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 uh, at this situation or should there be uh, some nervousness around the way that President Putin's competition, if there is some, uh, continues to, to lose ground? You know, I think their their moment of greatest relief was when the coup itself actually happened, because that threw a real light on the weaknesses of the Russian structure, uh, the weaknesses of Russia's ability to protect itself. And it took the Wagner forces out of the battle for sure. And I think once that had happened, we've been on a steady journey to where we are now in the discussion we're having right now. So I think that was the biggest moment of relief for Ukraine. Um, but this is a clear message, I think, or certainly will be interpreted as a clear message, given what we understand. Um, that if you move against the power structures in Russia, complex as they are, that you will pay a price for it. So don't even think about it. So I think in that way, it's consolidating uh, power for sure. Um, But I think it's still covering up the essential weakness that this happened at all. And the fact that Russia couldn't protect itself when it did. I mean, they've dealt with it over the last two months. um, And effectively, at this point, I think largely ground down the Wagner threat. Um, But nonetheless, uh, you know, that is not in itself a great thing to be doing during a conflict. So stronger for now, and I think more united for now, and certainly sending a message to anyone else that would threaten regime stability in Russia. But 
it is a house of cards still to an extent. And I think Ukraine has taken encouragement from that over the last two months. Putin's going to be running for his fifth term next year. I wonder how the Russian public's likely to react to this apparent killing of Prigozhin. You know, it's very interesting with the Russian public. I mean, they've um, largely shown a complete lack of interest. A lot of things have happened during the war. Um, there's actually quite a degree of apathy and sort of trying to ignore events that's um, quite predominant when you look at Russian, a lot of Russian media, speak to a lot of Russian people. And, and that was actually apparent during the Prigozhin mutiny where um, I actually had friends who were driving through where the forces were in contact with Russian troops. Um, and they were phoning to ask us what was happening because they hadn't really been paying attention. And um, you know, they were sort of very surprised by everything that was going on. And there was certainly no rallying of forces out on the streets for either side during that, unlike, say, in 91 or during Yeltsin standoffs uh, with Parliament and things like that in the 90s. It's a very different atmosphere. And you get the impression the Russian people in general are just keeping their heads down. They are being fed a diet of misinformation. Um, they sort of know that, I think. But at the same time, it's just not worth their while to to worry about it. And um, it really does affect their state of mind. So, I mean, I'd, I'd say that basically they're apathetic. And mm. of course, the elections are rigged anyway. Um, and I'm certain this one will be more rigged than most uh, next year. But there is an argument here. This is a time that Putin could potentially be removed from the scene you know, by our, with dignity um, by those factions beneath him potentially choosing to remove him at that time. But again, who would want his job at the moment with a extremely difficult conflict? Um, you know, would you want to step up now and be the president of Russia? Or do you want Putin to have to deal with all this fallout and then be the person that succeeds him once you yes. can blame it on the previous guy? And I understand that you spent quite a bit of time on the ground in Ukraine. How do you assess the the, the Russian operation in Ukraine right now? There, there'd been a lot of uh, talk ahead of the summer, well, earlier this year, about the Ukrainian counteroffensive and what that could deliver. How do you assess things at, the, at this point? I mean, the Russians had time to correct some of the errors they had last year. So they were pretty overextended this time a year ago, and that allowed uh, Ukraine to break through in Kharkiv and Kherson and some pretty big setbacks, the Russian there. Um, Sorovakin, you may recall, general who incidentally has just been firmly sacked, uh, which might not be a coincidence with the timing of the Prigozhin assassination, given that he was at least a supporter of Prigozhin. Um, he built these extensive defense lines in the south. They mobilized lots of people. And that has succeeded in countering what Ukraine's been trying to do so far. But that's been coupled with a really aggressive Russian defense. Um, they are refusing to sort of cede an inch of territory, even though they should. The smart thing to do would be to fall back and let Ukraine capture some ground but take losses doing it. Um, Russia is almost heedless of their losses in counterattacking the Ukrainians, uh, which is which is interesting. And that's a risky game for them because the Ukrainians could yet bleed them out and weaken them to the point they can break through in the south. But that's still a little bit up in the air at the moment. We're probably approaching the most critical time of the offensive on the ground there. Justin, you're a former British Army officer. You worked in the UK Ministry of Defence. I wonder how British officials will be thinking about this. I, I think British support for Ukraine has been unflagging and it, it precedes this phase of the conflict. And again, this is not a, a war that started in February last year, really. This is something that started in 2014. So um, the UK has long um, supported Ukraine. And I think that was evident the way that the UK stepped up to be the first to donate um, key equipment, so the first nation to donate heavy armoured vehicles in the Challenger 2 tanks, um, the first nation to give longer range cruise missiles in Storm Shadow, 
And even though not all of those donations were necessarily materially hugely significant, um, nonetheless, they opened the door for much more to follow. So the UK has always been leading the charge, especially as regards training, which is often overlooked. There's been a critical aspect of what Ukraine's been able to deliver on the ground so far. And there's no sign of that really changing, to be honest. I think the UK and Poland um, definitely amongst the staunchest um, supporters of Ukraine in it for the long haul. If you had to, to decide if this is going to draw a line in the sand for President Putin, um, uh, Justin, or if it's going to lead to a period of more political volatility in Russia, which side would you lean on? I mean, I think, again, it, it's slightly patching over the cracks, you know, solidly. It, it, it repairs the structure, but the cracks are still there. And I think the stresses on Russia are, of course, mounting. I mean, their gamble is that they can hold the line um, until Ukraine is exhausted, until the backers of Ukraine are exhausted. And that's one of the reasons they're counterattacking so hard is they want to hold on to the territory they've taken. They don't want to cede any of it um, because they are pretty much anticipating, I think, that there'll be a form of stalemate and that's what, what they'll have. So Russia's trying to play a longer game, but it's a difficult calculation for them because eventually the pain will get high and you know, higher than the, even an apathetic population can tolerate. Their other big hope is that there's a change of leadership in the US next year. And I think they're watching the US election campaign very, very carefully because some of the candidates would end support for Ukraine and demand an end to the conflict. And that's Russia's best hope right now. Yeah, I mean, it was a real recurring theme in the Republican presidential debates last night, the war in Ukraine. Do you think that there'll be any read across any influence on the UK's approach from the US approach? I think ultimately, I mean, just the scale of US donations is such that you... If the US changes its course, as we saw in Afghanistan, everyone else sort of has to follow, really. And there's nothing much you can um, there's nothing much you can do about that. There's nothing much you can do about that. It's uh, it's just the sheer scale of what they offer. If the US pulls its support, I think everyone else would be struggling a lot more to keep Ukraine in the fight to the extent to which it is. So to some, you know, we have to slightly follow the US lead on it. I mean, that said, the US military view is very firmly in support of Ukraine. Um, and there'll be some resistance to that changing, I think, at every level. Uh, but as you say, it is a key theme of particularly the Republican debate at the moment. Some people making overt statements, you know, solid candidates making overt statements that support for Ukraine should stop and US issues should be prioritised. And that's music to Moscow's ears. I mean, that's, that is their biggest help. Well, that was Justin Crump, CEO of Sibyline, which is a corporate intelligence and security firm. He was speaking to Anna Edwards and me earlier. Now, the war in Ukraine has also had big consequences for British consumers with the surge in energy prices we've seen last since last year. Tomorrow, the energy regulator Ofgem will reveal the latest price cap, which will apply for households for the coming winter. Despite the drop in wholesale gas prices, a report by the Resolution Foundation think tank says one in three English households will actually see higher energy bills this winter than they did last year. To discuss, we're joined now by Emily Fry, who's an economist at the Resolution Foundation. Emily, thanks very much for being with us. Wholesale natural gas prices looking on the markets are around a tenth of where they were a year ago. Why is it that you think that some households will end up paying more this winter? Thanks for having me on the programme. So the way that our, the wholesale gas prices will feed through into our energy bills this winter into lower energy bills is via the off-gem price cap, which uh, we expect to be about £200 lower uh, for the October to December period, uh, as it was for winter last year. And that's when you take into account the energy price guarantee of £2,500 combined with the £400 energy bill support scheme, uh, which was provided to all households. But the way that these 
different uh, items come together means that actually a third of households, those that use slightly less uh, electricity and gas than the typical household, about uh, four fifths of the amount of a typical household, will actually see their, their bills rise this winter. And so that's people who are more likely to be living in smaller um, apartments uh, or and uh, more likely to be kind of private and social renters. Um, and that's because you're seeing unit prices coming down slightly, but the standing charges, which are charged daily, regardless of your energy use, will rise. Um, and that's because we're the suppliers are recouping the costs associated with the supplier failures and the consumer defaults last year. And then finally, the flat 400 bill uh, energy support scheme, which um, was paid out in monthly installments, was regardless of the amount of energy consumption that households had. And that's being uh, removed this winter. And therefore, uh, households with lower consumption will see their bills rise. Is there a better way that the price cap could work so that it wasn't the poorest households being the worst affected, so that when inflation's coming down, bills come down as well? Yes, yeah, so one key um, thing that the Resolution Foundation has has done some research on in the past is something around a social tariff. And so this would look like something that is targeted based on household income and provide some kind of unit rate discount depending on your household income. And that could mean that lowering income households could particularly receive uh, additional uh, benefits from prices coming down and then higher income households would be on the hook uh, to pay the full amount. Um, at the moment, the government is consulting uh, or has said that they will consult around some more targeted um, options. Um, so we'll have to wait and see until April next year as to what that might look like. Uh, but we think that a social tariff would be the most effective uh, policy there. What about using something like the warm home discounts to try and support households in the interim as that's trying to be worked out? Is that a plan that could work? So the warm home discount does uh, do two key things. It's it's targeted towards um, households uh, which have uh, low, uh, which have higher energy use, um, but it is incredibly small. So it's about 150 pounds at the moment and hasn't really risen over the past few years. And so if we contrast that to the cost of living payments that have been uh, paid out over the last year, that's about 900 pounds that lower income households who receive uh, means tested benefits uh, are, are receiving this year. Um, and also it's it's not actually well targeted to those on lower incomes, in part because some of those on lower incomes do use less energy uh, than those on higher incomes. So fewer than seven in 10 households in the lowest income decile are eligible for that warm homes discount support. So adjusting that isn't likely to make a huge amount of difference to the households that we're talking about are particularly affected. Emily, the top priority for the government, for the Prime Minister, is to halve inflation by the end of the year. It's obviously hugely politically important that people feel richer. Do you think that this is still going to be the problem by the time of the next election? So we are seeing inflation come down um, reasonably rapidly at the moment, thanks in part to this fall in kind of unit prices of energy. And so, in fact, um, from October these prices will, will be deflationary um, for the overall uh, inflation levels. Um, 
But as we've seen in kind of the recent statistics, services inflation hasn't come down quite as quickly um, as, as we had expected, and in fact has continued to rise in the most recent figures. And that's a concern because that's where some of these kind of uh, bigger inflationary shocks, such as the energy crisis, are feeding in through more slowly. That's where we're getting discussion about wages um, in particular. And so we know that uh, our most recent data suggests that we are, for, for the first time in a really long time, seeing real wage rises. But if we if we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, um, we, we've actually seen about 15 years of stagnation in wages, which we estimate has cost an average worker about £230 a week. And so that bigger picture, longer term stagnation is really what we're concerned about. Okay, Emily Fry, economist at the Resolution Foundation, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the programme today to discuss that report ahead of the announcements that we're getting from Ofgem tomorrow and what the energy price cap will be set at for that key October to December period. Lizzie, I do wonder when we think about this, you know, how much the energy price cap will fall off the political agenda now that unit prices have come down and we've seen the, the, the bill amount come down by so much. Obviously, this is the sort of thing that we're going to have more challenges for our energy market down the road. That's obvious. Is this the time to be retooling this utility of the energy of the energy price cap to try and ensure that the next time there's a spike, for whatever reason that might be, that we're better prepared to be able to handle it? Yeah, look, I was just scrolling through Emily's Twitter there and she uh, noted that British Gas reported an 889% increase in profits for the first half of this year. And so... Even if people's bills do end up coming down by next year, it's still politically, optically a difficult situation to be in, though we're not having the headlines just yet about people having to make the choice between heating and eating. Yeah, certainly. Well, that is a debate I'm sure we'll hear plenty more about heading into the colder winter months. But that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was John Wasserman. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.